Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, uh, my name is Professor Kieran McAvoy. I work half-time in the School of Law um, here in Queen's and half-time in the Mitchell Institute. The Mitchell Institute is an interdisciplinary centre um, for the study of conflict and, and conflict transition. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Harty, who works in, in the law school. Um, Kevin, will you tell us a little bit more about your own PhD um, research um, the debate on policing and the and the to um, the police here in Northern Ireland, particularly within the Republic. Okay, well, I, the PhD was really it was interdisciplinary research that overlapped between memory studies, transitional justice, and critical criminology. So it was quite a a good breadth of of theory and concepts there. But in terms of the empirical case study, it was more a look at how memory conditioned change in Republican Irish Republican views on policing. Uh, historically and contemporary uh, on the the island of Ireland, so we would have looked at sort of what the Republican discourse and attitude to policing was prior to the the partition of the island of Ireland. So their relationship with the RIC, their relationship with militias, how that changed um, upon the the foundation of the Northern Ireland state, and their relationship to the Northern Ireland state, but also to the police force tasked with policing the Northern Ireland state. And then how that changed sort of as we entered the, the era of civil rights, how policing fed into that, how grievances over policing mirrored grievances over civil rights, and then how that sort of changed once conflict broke out and policing undertook a counterinsurgency remit and how changes in the conflict led to changes, subtle changes in the policing practices and the policing function and how the Republican relationship with an attitude towards policing changed throughout the conflict to mirror these and then culminating I guess in how Republican attitudes towards policing changed or not as the patent process came into being so the patent process of of reform and then looking at what their attitude was to post-reform policing so their attitude to for example symbolic changes like the change in uniform the change in name the change in symbolism which probably necessary but were very much dismissed even by those republicans who have accepted policing as a, a, a cosmetic change and then getting into more substantive sort of changes that would touch on on transitional justice stuff like uh, institutional reform as a guarantee of of non-recurrence so looking at you know the 50 50 recruitment policies looking at their attitude towards oversight bodies to the ombudsman to local policing bodies and I guess it captured uh, a range of perspectives on all of this from right across the Irish Republican constituency, from those who, you know, went to jail for politically motivated actions during the conflict, but who now actually sit on policing bodies, right through to those who belong to political groups that have some sort of loose affiliation with militant spoiler groups, and all of those in between, because one of the things that uh, kind of I suppose surprised me was the actual breadth and different opinions within the broad sort of re Republican 
constituency. So you have people within that who would be quite left, who would sort of be quite open and say that they, they'll always oppose policing from, from a, a leftist sort of perspective rather than a Republican uh, perspective. So it was quite uh, interesting unpacking all of that and seeing how that fed into wider sort of transitional justice things like approaches to truth recovery, you know, this sort of moving on processes. So you went to jail for 20 years for shooting a police officer. How do you now sit on a local policing board with with a police officer? How does the policing officer that you tried to kill feel about you sitting there? So interesting questions like that. Okay, I think we'll come back to that, Kevin, because I think the the Irish experience does have lessons, I, I suspect, to, for for other jurisdictions. More broadly, where does police reform sit within the broader um, field of transitional justice? I, uh, at initial sort of thought, sometimes it's kind of hard to locate it, and people think, well, you know, transitional justice. What has police reform got to do with that? But whenever you break down, as you know, the TJ scholarship does sort of the more seminal works on about these, what the, the pillars of transitional justice is, it's actually quite easy to seamlessly locate police uh, reform with, within those pillars. So if you look at uh, Rudy Titel's work and, and sort of the, the earlier transitional justice scholarship that talks about, although we have admittedly, we argue in favor of moving beyond legalism, but the, the early sort of work talks about transitional justice as, you know, orientating towards greater respect for the rule of law, particularly within communities that perhaps did not have the, the rule of law. So you're reforming that and you're trying to build confidence in the rule of law. Naturally, I guess the police force are probably the most physical manifestation of the rule of law that most people are going to in, encounter in their daily lives you know they, they're not really necessarily going to encounter prison clerks or court clerks or judges but police officers are by and large quite visible on the ground so when it comes to increasing confidence in the rule of law then uh, you have to increase confidence in the police force naturally because they are tasked with upholding and implementing the rule of law and quite often the the legitimacy deficit that the state has where the rule of law wasn't respected, transfers straight over to a, a legitimate deficit for the police. So the state isn't seen as legitimate, ergo the police force upholding that state isn't seen as legitimate. I suppose in a lot of the places we're talking about, Kevin, in transitional justice, the police themselves will have been involved in counterterrorism policing. They will have been the front line in some contexts, often perhaps in partnership with the military in counterterrorism efforts. You know, So they're not normally only involved in uh, ordinary inverted commas policing, but they're involved in policing of conflict. And so that puts them front and center as, a, as both a symbol and a, a practical expression of the state's battle against often what it frames the terrorism. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah no, that, that would be that would be a fair synopsis. I think if we look at sort of the history of policing before police reform in any society, it, it normally reflects kind of the, the undercurrents or the fundamental dynamics of of the division within that society that conflict has emerged out of. So you have divided society policing, which is quite often the case in uh, colonial contexts and indeed here in the north of Ireland where major operates on majority minority groups so one will take ownership of policing and the criminal justice system and to a large degree uh, control and ownership of the state while the minority community is largely excluded in other contexts we might have what is seen as regime policing 
uh, which would quite often be seen in the southern cone, uh, I suppose would be the, the more notable examples there where the police force are really just to protect the, the political and, and social order, particularly powerful figures. And then, as you, you mentioned, in any context where there's political violence, the police force are, are integral to that conflict, uh, often through counterinsurgency measures. And any police force that's involved in counterinsurgency, you know, it could be the police force uh, in Timbuktu, as much as the, the RUC here, for example, they, they all become embroiled in human rights yeah. abuses throughout conflict and, and counterinsurgency campaigns. And one of the things that sort of often baffles me is how, you know, a, lo a lot of these allegations that are now made against what so-called legacy activists uh, you know, there's nearly a tendency to suggest that the RUC was somehow an aberration to the, the worldly-wide wisdom that any police force engaged in counterinsurgency will abuse human rights. Now, the RUC certainly were not the only police force to do that, but you know, neither were they an exception to that. Is there an issue here as well? <laughs> this question comes because I've been recently watching, first of all, Narcos, and then <laughs> I've also been watching El Chapo, um, which is about, in effect, how El Chapo, Chapo Guzman, the drug lord, uh, takes over, um, becomes a parallel state, essentially, to, to Mexico. But one of the things that happens in, in both of those contexts, we're talking there about Colombia and Mexico, is that the police themselves are... are intrinsically involved, not just in, in counter-terrorist work, but also in collusion with, in in the case of Colombia, a collusion with pro-state paramilitary organizations, in the case of Mexico, with drug lords, you know, so you have criminal gangs where different sections of, of, of the police, local versus national and so forth, specialist squads, where they're lining up with protagonists to the conflict and they're part of the mess. Is that, is that a common experience in the transitional context where the, where the police themselves are part of the mess that, that is a conflicted or an authoritarian context? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're, they're actually great ex examples. Uh, I was doing some reading. Unfortunately, I'm not cool enough to watch interesting <laughs> shows like that. I, I'm just a nerd that reads TG academic literature, but I was, I was reading an article by Brianne McGonagall-Leah uh, recently on TG and police reform, and one of the arguments made there was that one of the ways that policing gets embroiled or enmeshed in, in the messiness, as you call it, is through corruption. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, quite often in those states like Mexico, not necessarily a conflicted state, but certainly through corruption uh, and involvement with drug cartels. Colombia, a little bit more fuzzy there because it was a political uh, conflict, but there is also the dynamics of organized crime there too. But also w one of the arguments made in, in that article was that one of the ways policing can become messy is that not only through human rights abuses and not only through corruption, but also through simply projecting whether it's the perception or, or a reality that they're completely disinterested in providing security to certain sections of the community or that they're you know completely disinterested in tackling or completely indifferent to particular elements of crime, be that organized crime or lower level crime, which I mean the parallel justice system, I mean, we've more than enough evidence of that uh, here in the north. As, I mean, you've done more research than most people on it, the, the, the idea of, of rough justice, which has sort of evolved, but, but still happens. Yeah, and I think police often see that, understandably, as, as a threat to 
you know, their integrity. And so, uh, you know, uh, well, and so on one level, the, the notion that the state should have the monopoly on the use of coercive force rests very heavily with the police. But in another context, if police are, are if the police, and certainly I think this was the case in the Northern Ireland context, if the police are having to prioritise what kind of crimes they're going to focus on, certainly in the Northern Ireland context during the conflict, they prioritise counterterrorism and ordinary crime, including preventing punishment violence, actually, by paramilitary organisations, was well down the pecking order. So there's a balance being struck there during the conflict. What's your sense, Kevin, of the, of the balances that are struck in the post-conflict process. So if you're engaged in a process of of police reform, what kind of balances in that kind of transitional context are being struck? I think there's, there's several sort of balances. I think the, the biggest one is that you have to balance the political with the practical. So, you know, there there's practical steps you can take, but politically, are they going to be palatable enough for, for certain constituencies? Because again, just like as, as we come back at the start about placing police reform within the transitional justice metrics you know there there's a political context to all of this there's a political process of transition and police reform has to be seen in that so while it might be practical to do something is the political appetite going to be there for it i think maybe the the best sort of example of that uh, in the northern context would have been the sort of attempt to limit community buy-in in the earlier years of uh, post-reform policing by sort of keeping it top down and particularly uh, by trying to keep former combatants at an arm's length and then obviously they were diverted into the likes of Alternative and CRJ which done amazing work and continue to do amazing work within within their communities but the idea of keeping the, the former combatants who had the social capital, who had the local knowledge, who had the local links, the local respect, knew their community, the idea of keeping them out uh, that was probably more a political calculation. If you think uh, would would unionist politicians have have accepted that in policing? You know, there there was still quite a a palpable sense of anger with within the the unionist community over a number of reforms. Be that you know the the change in name and symbolism. I think maybe saying to them, you know what, the local provo is also going to be given a, a chair at the the policing table. Probably would have would have been a bit more than than the the balance over yeah yeah because as you know in other contexts for example in south african context former combatants former members of mk the military wing of the nc did in fact join the the new policing service in in south africa i'll be interested in your reflections on this just to to use the northern ireland example there so you're talking about political and practical calculations and how much of this is bound up with your own particular area around memory? So I remember at one stage talking to a member of the Patent Commission, the body that was established to oversee, the to write a big report basically on under the stewardship of, of Chris Patton, former governor of Hong Kong, on what needed to happen in terms of policing. And I remember seeing one of the senior members of that talking, and he was talking about the experiences. One of the, as you know, one of the things that they did on the commission was they went around different communities hearing about the experiences of policing. And so he said, so whenever they went into Republican areas, the experiences that they heard of policing were of, well, first of all, people didn't know police officers as human beings. As you know, they were, the RUC were predominantly drawn almost exclusively from the, from the unionist community. So they didn't know any human beings who were police officers, but not just that, their experience of policing in, in Republican areas was about collusion and shoot to kill and torture and human rights abuses and all of those things and that was that was their lived experience of policing and then he said when 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 they went into unionist areas to hear about 
um, the experience of policing. For them, the experience of policing was about, first of all, of course, many, many people would have had family members who were, who were members of the police. But for them, the, the experience of policing was about um, bravery and self-sacrifice and professionalism and all of those things. And uh, it was Morris Hayes, this, this, this particular uh, member of the Patent Commission, who was saying this. And his, his, his view was both of those experiences were actually true. Both of those experiences reflected reality. So what's your own view as someone who studied very closely the relationship between memory and policing? How does that issue play out, um, for example, in terms of the broader debate on, on legacy and policing in Northern Ireland? I think it's very hard to argue, actually, with, with Morris as he is his position there. Um, I remember quite a few years ago now writing an article in the British Journal of Criminology that basically said there's there's the idea of getting a shared narrative of policing is just so pie in the sky that we should actually forget about it. I mean, we would have to build it on such a thin consensus that it would be diluted down to be absolutely meaningless. I think in the book, I sort of made an, an, an argument that Merge sort of has his position, and that was that when it comes to memories of policing, we're really engaging in morality play uh, plot lines here where, you know, total good versus on one side versus total bad on the other side. And, you know, truth, and we've sort of discussed over over pints before, well, you've had a pint and I've had a, a, a soda water in line, uh, strictly after office hours, about the whole, the whole notion of truth. And I'm fairly dubious about the whole idea of truth, but you sort of feel that it's, it's good and uh, limiting permissible lies but what would the permissible lies on the legacy of policing be i mean yes the ruc were uh, you know indicted by every major human rights organization uh, on a number of grounds over, over a number of practices but you know over 300 officers also died over 8000 were injured there was an impact on their family life their daily life and actually reading their memoirs you can see uh, you know the prevalence of alcoholism actually as a coping mechanism so depending on your perspective i mean somebody from from my sort of communal background and the people you know uh, where i grew up would, would certainly not have seen that human element to to ruc officers and certainly wouldn't have seen that impact on their daily lives but they definitely would have seen the impact of the uh, ruc in their capacity as victimizer we definitely would have seen the the sort of impact that they had on other people's lives. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that people from you know where I grew up that their narrative of policing is lies, but similarly that doesn't mean that the the narrative of the police officer is lies. But I think at the same time too, there is while we acknowledge there's different perspectives on it, there is still a wholesale denial almost that the RUC ever did anything wrong. And that's sort of spilt over now. And we can see that, but that's maybe more to, to do with a wider state issue. And we can see at the moment with Boris trying to pass his overseas bill, trying to give a, a blank check to informers. And still, there's this notion to do that, you have to buy into some sort of myth that you know, there was nothing ever untoward went on here. Uh, but that the fact that some RUC officers were involved in collusion, some were involved in shoot the kill, still doesn't detract from the fact that over 300 lost their lives and over 8,000 were injured. So depending on your perspective, it's both true. So, yeah, I, suppose, I, suppose that's, I, I suppose that's exactly why perhaps I'm more, more in favour of truth recovery processes is precisely 
both all of those realities, you know, to capture all of those human realities, that experiences of community victimization, but also the lived experiences of police officers and their families, and recognizing that that issues around loss, um, memory, and and so forth, it's very difficult balance to be struck. Obviously, I mean, in as you know, in the pattern process, I'm interested. I'll be interested in your views on this. Pattern um, made a conscious in how they were going to manage the transition of policing in that unlike other jurisdictions where where you knew that you had systemic problems and you knew you had had police officers who were involved in illegal activity human rights abuses and so forth so in some contexts and as you're aware what happens is that you have a process of lustration in effect where you and in some it is even prosecution where you you know you go after inverted commas the bad and you you that's part of the process of um creating a new police service in the pattern process what what they did instead was um they privileged human rights at the center of new policing of the new policing dispensation so a privileging of human rights discourse a privileging of professionalism of community policing and they created a very generous pension package and in effect what pattern and i've spoken to commissioners who are very honest about this what they were trying to do was to say to particularly if you were of that old school where you thought that human rights abuses or torturing um, uh, people in police stations was permissible you should probably take your package you're not going to like the new um protectors um what that that uh, first of all do you think that's a reasonable characterization of what pattern did and secondly if so do you think that that was the right? Well, yeah, I think it's ex- exactly what what they did. Is you know the the term the patent golden handshake is is part of the the parlance in in any of the the policing literature. Basically, this is a new way of doing things. If you don't like it, here's a, a huge wad of cash. Take yourself off. In terms of was it right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you look at Argentina, where they did have some sort of token illustration and some sort of token trials. But the, the people that were involved in the, the, the Navy Mechanics School Torture Centre, quite a lot of those people were able to retain their position. And they were also still in positions of influence and involved in the training of, of later generations, which you know might explain why 30 years after the military hunter, there were still people being disappeared in Argentina. Like in the 30 years after the military hunter, there was, what, 213 people disappeared. Uh, 4,000 people shot or tortured by the security services. If you don't remove people that are involved in that, you know, don't be surprised that the same thing happens. In terms of pattern, I mean, it comes back to the political and the practical. What are you going to do? Turf everybody out? In that case, you might have, have no police force. And, and and going back to your earlier point, the political consequences of that in terms of maintaining unionist support for the agreement um, would have been very challenging. You know, so I can certainly see the logic of what Pat did. It's the same issue as you've said yourself around this balancing act, where but this is what this is what transitional states are faced with. How do we transition towards the rule of law, towards human rights compliance? Keep. Polit- keep political momentum, keep people on board who need constituencies, who need to be kept on board. My final question is is, is linked to this, Kevin. On that on that point, where we're we're in agreement that balances are being struck and pragmatic accommodations are being reached here. How do you measure success in police reform in transitional contexts? Uh, that's sort of the 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 sixty four million dollar question, really. Uh, and sort of the literature would sort of say that there's maybe three sort of broad ways that you would measure it and that is 
how representative is the new police force of the society that it's policing? What are the levels of cooperation? So is the community cooperating with the police force? But likewise, is there our police service? It shouldn't be a police force during transition, which it should be a police service. Is the police service being responsive to the needs of the community when the community bring it there? And then finally, one of them is how respective is the reform police service of legitimate political dissent and human rights, balancing that against its sort of regulatory function of state security. And I think actually in in the north of Ireland still, you know, however many years after Pat and even after Sinn Féin signed up to police, and I mean, I wouldn't, not to sound like a pessimist, but I'm not so sure we, we would give it a, a clean bill of health on, on any of those grounds. Yeah, and I think there's, there's an interest, this is my, my I think my final point, and I'll be interested in your reflections on this, is police officers themselves, how they work, um, who they're interacting with. Policing, in the policing literature, there's a big discussion on how police officers divide communities and divide individuals between the rough and the respectable. And often how police services benchmark whether or not they're, they're working effectively is, um, well, respectable people get on fine with us. Um, but I remember listening to former uh, PSNI chief constable um, who'd also um, been a senior police officer in the Met in London. And he was on this very point. He said, well, the way I benchmark my success is not in the nice uh, bourgeois middle class areas, of, but is what my, what are the relationship between uh, my officers in the Met and, um, you know, previously estranged communities in Brixton, Brixton. And so how do we how do we as a police service deliver to um, uh, people of colour who historically we've had difficult relations with? So it'd be interesting in your reflections finally, perhaps on that issue, on on the rough and the respectable and how police in a transitional context, um, judge whether or not they're they're doing what they're meant to be doing. Uh, I think sort of the, the issue is that whenever we tend to look at police reform in transitional context, yes, there's a transitional context. We have to always recognise and acknowledge that there are problems with policing everywhere and that some of those issues and dimensions to policing will, will be reflected, whether it's a conflicted society, post-conflict society, or what's often referred to as the, the liberal Western democracy. You know, there's class dimensions to policing, there's racial dimensions to policing, there's gender dimensions to policing, and they're all relevant too. I mean, in terms of, of Ord's remarks, I mean, I don't know... <laughs> Turkey's voting for Christmas because I wouldn't think either during Hugh Ward's, uh, you know, tenure or since that there's a particularly great relationship b- between the PSNI and the Rough, and that's not just in Republican areas. I remember it was actually about a year ago. If you remember, I was supposed to go to that that workshop in in the Basque Country on restorative justice, and then due, uh-huh. due to a huge timetable and boo boo on on my part, I, I couldn't go. But there was two former loyalist combatants there, and there. They were uh, involved in restorative justice in loyalist areas, and still, I mean, they weren't exactly painting a rosy picture of the relationship. Uh, and I mean, that that's shown as well in terms of uh, some of the stuff that we've seen coming out of the flags protest and some of the stuff coming out of the parading issue. So, I mean, uh, yeah, it's okay, you know, the respectable, the respectable anywhere will probably get on with the police. You know, the, the, it's in both their interests to get on, but. Uh, in terms of the rough, I mean, would would you know working class people in Tigers Bay have any greater graph for the police than working class people in the New Lodge? Probably not, and it's probably what I've sort of argued 
in a, an article actually in Critical Criminology about two, three years ago was that this is a, a class-based commonality and a structural issue that's completely masked over by this sort of facade of, of ethno-nationalism. So both have a very dim view of policing on a class-based you know, basis. No, I think you make a very good point on the class issue, and I think it's a good point to to maybe round up this conversation because I think we're running out of time here. But um, in that it that, that these issues around class are are cut across issues and that cut through the broader um, political and sectarian conflict in this jurisdiction. But they are, as you say, they affect any um, any post conflict or, or transitional society. So it sounds like we have some way to go on the policing issue. Kevin, thank you very much. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff here at Queen's University Belfast. And I want to thank again Dr. Kevin Hardy, my guest today. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look at the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you can get your podcast. Thank you for listening. And I am Kieran McAvoy, and this was LawPod.